Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ethics and Open Source, a podcast where we talk about software, open source, and its impact on society. That includes the good, bad, and the ugly. I am Michael Nolan, here with Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, as everybody. Well. Hi. As well as uh, Varun Mather, who is our guest today. Varun is a technology fellow at the AI Now Institute uh, and also previously served as a data science for social good fellow at Microsoft. Varun also helped build publicmedsforcovid.org, which tracks public investment in global COVID-19 research and development. How is everyone doing? Varun, how are you? As good as we can, <laughs> you know, during these times, but so far so good. We're super happy to have you here today. This is a, uh, a very important topic, and it's also a topic that's been in the news quite a bit. Um, we're seeing a, a whole lot of emphasis on ethics and AI lately, and um, I think it mirrors some of the discussions around ethics and open source as well. And of course, machine learning, data science, AI, all have uh, reliance on open source technologies. Um, so, Vaughn, uh, what does the world look like to you right now? Man, I think the pandemic has kind of fundamentally shifted how we start to engage with these systems, especially given that we're remote uh, in a way. Um, so the world looks very different than when I entered the field, and I'm kind of a newbie in this space, as it is. Um, but I think, you know, there are some really important topics within this larger field that sort of illuminate what the path might look going forward. And I think that's really cool and interesting. Nice. Well, before we dive into that, I think it'd be cool to hear a little bit about you, your background, and specifically how you got into the space of social good and technology, um, AI in particular. Yeah, I think uh, so. My journey actually starts like as an undergrad student that was actually a pre med major. Um, for me, the intersection of healthcare with uh, livelihood and human rights was fundamentally very important to me. Um, and I think midway through my like trajectory to going into med school, I was like, you know, if I want to equip myself with like the tools necessary to engage in the 21st century, maybe getting a computer science degree might not be a bad idea. That's a short story for what ended up happening. But um, I ended up uh, double majoring in computer science. And I think at that moment in time, when I was trying to uh, marry the sort of my real passion for sort of building technologies as an engineer um, and building and learning about machine learning and sort of thinking about how to scale positive impact in people's lives and recognizing that you can't extricate the political from this issue uh, yes. became increasingly important for me. And I started then viewing opportunities through that lens. Um, so Microsoft offered an opportunity for you know new graduates at the time to come through and use their data science skills to try to impact public policy. And I think that's kind of where my first real sort of step forward into that space was. And I think at that time as well, I was also looking for 
opportunities that would place me in uh, workspaces that I could work in an interdisciplinary team. You know, the step that comes after recognizing that the political can't be removed from this is also recognizing the inherent value that ethnographers and anthropologists and historians and lawyers and policymakers also play in that, not just computer scientists or engineers or devs when building this technology. And so I really wanted to take a chance to learn uh, from them. And AI Now Institute at the time was fairly new um, as an institute at NYU that was dedicated to trying to tackle this space. And literally, like everything else through Twitter, <laughs> I got an opportunity to hang out with them and come through and serve as a technology fellow uh, on their team. And that's where I'm at right now. And so it's been a wild ride, but it's been a lot of fun. One of the things that you said really resonates with me. And I so wish that Astrid were with us today because uh, Astrid is both a sociologist and an engineer um, and would likely have some uh, strong opinions on this. So I'm going to channel my inner Astrid today and uh, really point out the value. And I'd love for you to talk about how you see this like playing out in uh, in the work that you're doing, the value of interdisciplinary teams and the value of the marriage of humanities with technology, I think uh, I think you know there's such a there's such a body of work um, in sociology and ethnography um, and ethics are baked in to the way um, to the way those studies are performed. And uh, I think we have a lot to learn about how to apply ethical frameworks to our work, um, learning from um, humanities scientists. So how do you see that, uh, that interdisciplinary approach to AI playing out in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think it's definitely a idea that has gained more and more traction if you chart the course of sort of AI ethics as a field. I think recognizing that ethics that doesn't deal with power dynamics or recognizing who's making decisions and why uh, becomes what is now quote unquote ethics washing, which is basically ethics that doesn't really serve as an accountability purpose. Um, in order to arrive at an understanding of that field of who's got power, who doesn't. You need to be listening to the lived experiences of people who are most impacted. And in order to do that, you need the right tools and you need the right knowledge to foreground all of those discussions to build trust and accountability. And computer scientists are just not equipped to deal with all of that. Um, and that's why domain experts and especially those, so for example, in the global health space, anthropologists that have uh, worked, lived, and research, um, but are also a part of these communities, um, are closer to that pain. Um, that when we try to develop and deploy technologies, we wouldn't necessarily think about listening to, um, at least especially for big corporations and other and other bigger teams. And I think that's where the real necessity for interdisciplinary research comes through. Um, and especially when developing frameworks. Um, and I think that's kind of where 
the data ethics conversation from just focusing on privacy to like what's appropriate to build and what's not. Those are the kinds of conversations that you just can't have, um, you know, just siloed in your own space. I mean, for example, data privacy discussions, if you're in a primarily technologist environment or arena, we'll necessarily talk about federated learning. Let's talk about parallel computing. Let's talk about other systems and how do we solve this issue. But if I'm talking about privacy of data and I'm talking about it in the domain such as healthcare, HIPAA compliance is just one facet of that. You know, the actual trust and accountability issue has a lot to do with race and a lot to do with distrust with the entire system as a whole. That can only be approached when you're talking to people who live outside of the technologist purview. I think that's kind of where the real value of interdisciplinary research has come together. Also, the other facet of this is that when you're doing this research, you're just not equipped with the right tools. Um, the way sociologists work and the way STS scholars work is so necessary, but their tool set is very, skill set is very different than, than devs. Um, and so I'm able to like build the technology. I'm able to do the data visualizations. I'm able to build the models. I'm able to think critically about the tech systems to some extent, but I can't do it without uh, my mentors and my peers. I'm kind of curious. Um, soci sociological studies and ethnographic studies don't really produce quantitative data. The data they produce is qualitative. So how do you marry that with, data science? I think the way I think about it, and this is a very crude way of thinking about this, is if I'm a dev and uh, I'm thinking about quality assurance, you're thinking about edge cases, right? Um, you're thinking about where systems might fail and where they don't. But in order to come at a list or an idea of what those edges look like, you need to understand the field that you're deploying and, de and the domain that you're working in. And I think that's kind of where the quality meets the quantity in a way. Um, at least that's how I'm thinking about it. Um, you know, I don't have the answers to a lot of this and um, it's ways in which I'm actively, you know, learning from other people um, that makes this process so unique and so fascinating. But I think that's kind of where it's at, where sociologists and ethnographers provide the lens in which to view those problems. Um, and I think that's how they come together in a way. One thing that you said earlier that really stuck out to me was um, this idea of like accountability and feedback. Um, and so uh, coming from the humanitarian aid sector where that's already a huge um, issue, like there are a million different accountability and feedback uh, mechanisms for the donors onto NGOs but there are very little, if, if none at all, accountability and feedback mechanisms to the people actually receiving the aid. Um, and one thing that's really scary, especially when, you know, a, a lot of donors are looking and saying, oh, hey, we can save this amount of money by, you know, automating these types of management or uh, using machine learning to like figure out what sort of programs we should do and so on. Um, and those, by, by automating those systems, you know, at least previously we would have caseworkers and field workers uh, advocating on behalf of beneficiaries because they interface them. But now by automating those, you're even removing that one little sliver. Yeah. Um, and so 
like you said, you know, it's hard for a developer, especially when you're just like handed a project to work on, you know, like even a good faith developer that wants to do something, it becomes very difficult for, yeah. for them to design those sort of things into the system just because, you know, it's, it's not on the product roadmap. Yeah, exactly. I think there, I think what you touched on is super interesting because it comes back to sort of the larger discussion that's been happening, which is like, what is AI? What is tech for good? Um, yep. and there's, and there's a lot of, and there's, there's like one piece I saw on media that was like tech for good doesn't actually exist. Um, because how you're thinking about solving those problems is necessitates or actually presupposes the idea that the tech should be built in the first place. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the, the crux of it, especially for data scientists, for us, I mean, from like an educational standpoint, we are basically taught that, you know, everything is data and like your inclusion in solving these problems is always a good thing um, because data driven and then blank and then insert your favorite, whatever. Um, and so that's kind of how, you know, we're at least taught or that's least how most of the young up and coming data scientists and scholars are thinking about it. Um, but I think the idea correctly, NGOs are also actually a fascinating example because uh, it's very tricky in the way that we think about sort of uh, the lack of resources or in like resource poor settings. Um, you know, should we be automating this? Should we not? Is this more of a capacity issue? Um, I got a chance to write a quick paper with uh, two uh, healthcare uh, professionals that I really admire, Judy Wahabaria um, and uh, Saptarshi, both at Emory and Indiana. Um, where we just talked about like, you know, the need for AI to constantly say, you know, we're building the system so that we can replace physicians who don't exist in the global South. But that isn't your problem. Your problem is funding and your problem is a largely political thing. And so there's a more sinister issue of using resource poor settings and other problems that are framed by NGOs to sort of spur on research that might actually just benefit more people in the global north. <laughs> and so um, there's always this, like, these weird balances that exist in that space. But yeah, it's, it's, it's part of a larger discussion that I'm glad is at a point where it is right now, especially with the intersection of the discussion we're having with in terms of race and equity that's so been the focus in the last summer, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I could definitely go on for ages about anti-development. But one, one thing I would like to kind of further is I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, a lot of what you said seems to allude to, you know, there's this uh, inherent connection between the technology we build and also the, the social socioeconomic systems that we exist in, Right. And oftentimes it's, it's hard to like divorce one from the other, you know, technology kind of follows that rather than is like a revolutionary thing in and of itself. Um, but you know, uh, there's a lot of, like you said, tech is politics. And so, um, we, especially in the ethical source community, uh, Coraline, I've noticed this, you get a lot of people coming through being like, well, what about like building good tech, you know, like what is ethical tech? Cause a lot of the stuff that we do in our community is preventing, you know, bad organizations from utilizing this commons that we're building. Um, but what does good tech look like? And so uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts. If, 
you know, you've done any research or your colleagues around, uh, if we can theorize what a good socioeconomic system looks like and then build technology targeted specifically at that. Um, I've seen a lot of communities around like platform cooperatives uh, in, in organizations like that, trying to build more, you know, democratic technology. Um, and ha- have you thought about that or like doing like blue sky utopian uh, thinking or anything like that? Oh man. Um, th- yeah. So like last summer I had a chance. So uh, when we were all like meeting in person, that seems ages ago now, but um, there uh, there's a, organization called Mahente, and I know that they were mentioned briefly on your, on your last show, um, that is a grassroots organization of, of Latinx and Chickenx uh, organizers, especially in, in, in the California area as well. And I, so I was there, um, and I got to hear from grassroots organizers and, and uh, devs that were building tools to help their community. Right. And it was like, you know, browsers that protect privacy and other things. And it, it was like, you know, there was this burgeoning community of folks who had uh, some amount of computer science knowledge or operated, you know, development knowledge that wanted to build it for their communities. Um, and to me, I can't help but be super inspired by all of that. Right. You know, how can this this is this is basically using the master's tool against master. Right. And I think that was an example that made me inflect about sort of what is tech for good in a way. Um, to me, you know, subverting power dynamics is an inherent part of that. Um, oftentimes when we think about, and this goes to most projects that I've built, um, they are data analytics or data dashboards or open source tools that help policy legislators, um, government organizations or NGOs that are doing a lot of surveillance work or are trying to sort of, uh, they're in charge, quote unquote, right? And you basically build tools to serve those who are in power. Um, And that requires some significant thought about, well, how how does this uh, cement the current politics that might exist? And I think that's kind of how I was thinking about what tech for good is or means tell tell us about public meds for covid how did it get started you know what is it for our uh listeners and you know how did you get involved uh public meds for covid uh is a project that spun out of the students effort at university's ally for essential medicine so i mentioned that i used to be a pre-med student and my interest specifically in human rights started as an access to medicines activist. And so UAM was an organization that was built around chapters at universities that were uh, dedicated to ensuring that uh, life-saving medicines and uh, technologies that we build are accessible by those that need it most because they're happening and they're being built in our labs, university labs, and they're funded by public funds through taxpayer dollars. And so taxpayers shouldn't have to subsidize pharmaceutical research and then have to pay up their nose again through price hikes um, because of greed. And I think that was something, a very powerful movement, at least for us, because it recognized that students at that moment in time 
could be the activists and the change they needed to see. They didn't have to get degrees. They didn't have to wait. Um, and this is like 2013, 2014. So that message, although that's like super obvious now because everyone's got a TikTok account, um, wasn't as apparent then. Um, and so that was super inspiring and motivating for me. And so I've kept, you know, with the organization all this time um, and supporting students now in my position where I can. Public Meds for COVID started in like literally the first month or two of the pandemic when everyone was in lockdown, nobody could focus on their work. And we were all like, what can we do to help? And this is, I think, what the biggest idea was, is that at some point a vaccine is going to pop up. And that vaccine is going to be found to show that it had millions upon millions upon millions of public dollars behind it. And we're going to end up in a equity, equitable distribution issue where the vaccine is not reaching the people that need it most. The price is ridiculous. And because this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Pandemics of, of this nature, Ebola in, you know, the African continent, um, Zika in Brazil. I mean, we see this time and time again. Um, and so that's kind of where it started. It was, can we use public available information to create a database that shows all of the money that's being poured into drug development? And what we found was really stark and interesting, and this is obviously off the back of work that was done by Public Citizen, is that money from taxpayer dollars, especially in the United States, has been pouring in since 2010, specifically on mRNA vaccines. This isn't new. We've been pouring a millions upon millions of dollars into vaccine research. That has led to this moment that we now have unprecedented access to vaccines or multiple vaccines in such a short time frame. And while the science here is absolutely and rightly so getting applauded, um, the distribution of those vaccines uh, requires some amount of scrutiny. And I think that was what we led to. It was a global effort by tons of students across the world, um, in Europe, especially here, Canada, um, the United States, everywhere, Korea, Australia. Um, and we've sort of been iterating on that. So we're actually going to release a newer version of that pretty soon um, that builds more the analytics and sort of the summary data. But it was a very, it was like the cl fastest class project I've ever seen churn out in like two months because nobody could focus on their work. <laughs> and we just wanted to build something that pointed to what we saw was the equitable distribution vaccine issue. Absolutely awesome, inspiring. You know, when you see a class come together and make a class project that fast for any reason, it's <laughs> yeah. inspiring, especially for COVID. Uh, that, that's really cool. One, one thing I'm interested in is obviously, you know, the point of this is to kind of spur um, action beyond your group, right? By, by creating a sort of transparency, you could potentially spur, uh, you know, further activism or policy change. Um, can you tell me a bit more about, you know, have you done any work around that? Have you found um, any people sort of interpret it and change the way they were thinking about previously? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the the data itself has been super useful for uh, actually other student chapters as well. Um, that has sort of been an internal feedback loop of students building tools that have also supported movements for other students at other schools. Um, the mapping tool provides a capability for students who are looking to try to get involved in this activism to find out how their school is doing, uh, a tool that isn't necessarily available to, or out, apart from us, 
not any available to anywhere else. I um, mean, it's harder to, it's not as accessible for uh, folks who are trying to advocate for the communities, but are not sort of access to medicine scholars or deep into the space. Um, and I think that's kind of where the biggest impact has been had. Um, it's also been used in conjunction with Free the Vaccine Campaign, which has been an offshoot in partnership with UAM and other NGOs and other civil society groups. Um, it's been uh, bolstering a lot of the public medicine uh, data. Um, Zane Rizvi, who's been doing fantastic work showing just like how much money the Department of Defense has poured into just this one vaccine by Moderna in and of itself, which has its own issues. <laughs> like, But um, just the fact that, um, you know, originally they wanted to provide a pandemic pricing of the vaccine and then realized that we're not as stupid as they think we are and then said, okay, you know what, we're going to provide this at a much more reduced cost than what we initially wanted to do before. Um, all of that has been vital in the current administration's thinking around vaccine distribution. Um, and any point of activism that has been focused around vaccine pricing and distribution has at some level taken into account public funding of the vaccine, which I think has been heartening. And it just shows just the power of utilizing public available data specifically for a political target purpose. You know, it, it feels almost like we're coming full circle here, right? Mm -hmm. People ask, you know, what is tech for good? Like a lot of people um, talk about tech for good. And in fact, here in the UK, I'm a part of a couple tech for good. There's like networks here of different organizations. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to some of the organizers because there's a, a tech for good organization that's building uh, tools to help your local police officers uh, and like, you know, learn Python from the NSA um, as like, you know, getting our communities together. And so, uh, you know, that's certainly uh, a an organization. Um, and I don't want to like, you know, bad math, but there, there is this really difficult thing where like, where do we define good? Where do we define ethical? Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, with examples like that, when people feel lost, it's, it's good to at least use this as like, this is like a social cause that we care about and we want to champion and, and defining that in, in clear terms, uh, is definitely, you know, really interesting. And Coraline, I'm sure you can speak much <laughs> much more uh, more experienced than I have uh, on that subject as well. I was wondering if you if you have any thoughts in, in combating this whole um, tech for good. A lot of people think it can exist, you know, and, and your experiences in that. Well, I talk a lot um, in the talks I give about ethics and open source, about how technologists and this has been recognized since the 1950s with the work of Edmund Berkeley. Um, technology does not exist in a vacuum, as we've talked about. It exists within the context of a society. Mm -hmm. And I think as technologists, we have to understand that we have a greater than average impact on society. We have an outsized impact on society, and that's just where we are today. And we really need to... Think about, not think about, we need to take responsibility for our impact on the world. And that's hard to do. And it's a big burden. And a lot of people would rather shrug it off and simply put their head in the sand and insist that technology is neutral. Um, mm -hmm. 
and shirk their responsibilities. And I think we need examples of people accepting those responsibilities and working for social good and delivering on the promise of social good to to show that it is possible. But I think the other kind of thing that we've been skirting around is the intersection of capitalism and social good. And I think one of the tactics that we need to develop as ethical technologists is incentives for corporations to do the right thing and repercussions for corporations doing the wrong things. So I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in seeing what kind of strategies emerge from these various um, social good technology initiatives, spanning open source, spanning other digital commons, spanning open data, um, AI, machine learning, all of these disciplines. Um, I think it all comes down to accepting our social responsibility and finding ways to uh, to incentivize pro-social behavior. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Like the, the comment on capital incentives is like so key to this discussion because you cannot the the way in which especially like machine learning tools work is by optimizing for some you know objective function and many people uh look at that objective function as exactly that just neutral um and and it's not and i think that's kind of where ben green who's a former colleague of mine has a really fantastic paper that i would advise like other viewers to check out called data scientists as political actors um and it's just a great sort of paper that it's one of my favorite papers that just basically situates the idea of data scientists as an individual in sort of not running away from that and and what responsibilities ought to be taken in that regard um in terms of like regulatory incentives as well i mean this is kind of where the auditing of ai tools has sort of come up um but i think the really interesting part of this has to do with the open source part of it, which is sort of the licensing of these tools, um, which is, I've been trying to get into, um, there's a discussion around what kind of open source licensing actually lends itself to being just used. So for example, um, Seth Vargo, uh, who was the open source developer who removed his code because chef was working with ice at the time. And then had the code reinstated because I, I guess it was in the Git logs and you could just, you know, revert to another per- version of it. Um, but just the idea of like, this is my code and I want it to be used for this purpose brings up to the question of like developers taking responsibility for their technology, not just after you've built it and deployed, but soon after, like, you know, overseeing. So where is it being used? How is it being used? And then stepping up when it's being used improperly. Um, and so what kind of licenses can help with that? Um, there's a fascinating discussion in the open source community that I'm sort of really just trying to learn from that I think is really fascinating. It also has a lot of ties to the machine learning community as well because data sets and data and not just the models are important functions of that infrastructure and how those get incorporated in the sort of fair use uh, aspect of it is super fascinating and interesting to me. The uh, Seth Fargo story is very close to my heart. Um, because it was the combination of Mehente's No Tech for Ice 
and the actions of Seth Fargo that enraged me to the point that I wrote the Hippocratic License. Um, because what I saw is uh, the open source establishment, GitHub, and in this case, Ruby Gems, where the libraries were distributed, had the side with the human rights abuse, the human rights abusers, because that's how the system was set up. And developers like Seth, who feel that sense of responsibility, have no tools. The open source establishment provides absolutely no tools. And in fact, actively discourages such tools because of freedom zero, the freedom to operate software for any purpose, including explicitly on the website for ill, for mm -hmm. evil. And uh, so the ethical source movement and now the organization for ethical source and our working group is all about trying to find ways to empower creators and empower contributors to the digital software commons in whatever form that takes to shoulder that responsibility. And that means giving them agency. And I think agency is what's been missing from the open source community for a long time. I think it was really interesting. You know, we've had a lot of discussions around licensing and specifically in the field of AI too, especially recently in, in uh, one of our sub working groups. Um, because of this intersection where, you know, AI isn't simply a model, but the software used to train it, the data set. Um, and, and one of the things I, I love about the ethical source movement and the Hippocratic Oath and a lot of our, our partner licenses as well um, is this, you know, this focus on providing people who are contributing something more agency over and more say over how it gets used. Um, one thing that when I think of, you know, large tech companies such as, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it, like Google, uh, developing services like Google Translate that rely heavily, heavily on leeching, you know, lots and lots of labor from universities all around the world and organizations and pretty much giving nothing for it, right? But simply throwing around their weight. And they do this in uh, the healthcare sector as too, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and oftentimes, you know, and, and it's not just them, right? It's a lot of AI companies, you know, mechanical turking their way to, you know, a billion dollar valuation. Uh, but, you know, in these cases, especially many developers view themselves as direct contributors. But when we think about, you know, how can we empower people who are contributing really valuable data uh, with licensing strategies and, and specifically by like letting people know about that. I think that's a, a really exciting thing about providing more power to people who, you know, pro honestly, I think in many ways, they even know that they had any in the first place. Yeah, I think that's, that's super key. I think from my sort of limited understanding of, of the open source world from that respect, um, how ownership is thought of is, uh, a really important issue. Um, but I think the way the parallels in the AI ethics work that I do is fascinating because uh, what we see is a largely unbalanced infrastructure problem where even if you wanted to build uh, these tools, you were uh, and are 
dependent on a few frameworks that are built by the top companies, right? Compute power that's built by the top, co- that's provided by the top companies, cloud providers that are also provided by the top companies. And so the democratization of technology has large fractures where on the one hand, um, open source tools can be used by corporations to build tools without compensating developers in a way because it's part of the open source ecos. And on the other hand, AI tools can't be democratized necessarily because, um, you know, if you're not a big player, um, you are dependent on cloud compute and most often even times data and model infrastructure. So basically, you know, you're entirely dependent if you're trying to build AI tools and models. So there's, I think both of these things highlight the imbalance in what many people want to smooth over as the democratization of technology, but that doesn't necessarily exist in the, I guess, the purview or the, the way I'm seeing it. Um, and that has also a large impact on the ethics. You know, if developers can't have any control over the technology that they're building, then they can necessarily, they necessarily don't have any say on the ethical uses of it. Likewise, um, you know, if you're building AI tools and you're worried about bias and you're using out-of-the-box models or you are wanting to build an AI tool but you don't want to use cloud that is also powering technology that's used to target undocumented immigrants, um, you know, how many, how many, your options are limited and severely limited to the point where you can't. And so that democratization, I think, is a false narrative, at least for now. And I think that's part of where the regulatory aspects come in. Yeah, I absolutely think you're right where... It, you know, you can't really consider uh, a technology democratized where like your average person doesn't have the means of producing it like that technology or an alternative. You know, one thing that I found really interesting, especially here in the UK, a couple of years ago, you know, there was a call for, you know, for Internet access should be considered a public utility right. Right? and everyone or a, a section of people you know, really didn't like hearing that and said it was ridiculous and you can't consider it the same as water. Yeah. I'm sure all those people feel very silly now that pretty much all of our lives are completely reliant on internet. Um, but you know, like maybe we aren't thinking far enough ahead, you know, maybe, uh, you know, compute clusters is the next thing, right? Like (laughs) what is a democratically controlled, you know, UN-sponsored compute cluster for the whole world. Yeah. I think you're right, though, when you say like the, the access to to certain resources and goods is like a, is a huge thing, and, and vast swaths of society are, uh, are are really like we have to think about you know what what does society's material access to the means of changing and impacting these things look like? Yeah, because you know. Visibility is one thing, but there are many other parts that go into affecting the technology that is built um, and, and it has to go beyond simply just asking nicely. So I would like to move on. I would like to hear uh, a little bit more about the work that you're doing with the AI Now Institute mm-hmm. in particular. I, I have a feeling, you know, a lot of the work you do seems to overlap with this uh, general theme, but... Would you like to tell us a bit more about what you're doing with them? Yeah, for sure. Um, The cool thing about like the role that I have is that I got placed onto many different projects that I had a great deal of interest in. And so from that, uh, 
there are a lot of cool strands that I get to, to hop on as part of why I love this job so much. Um, one part of that is thinking about how young developers and students are thinking about joining in the industry. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, Meredith Whitaker and I put together a medium doc that focused on um, helping students understand how to interview a tech company, uh, which the title was a little bit facetious in a way because, you know, one of the questions in that document is, do you allow your workers to unionize? And I don't necessarily recommend <laughs> young people necessarily asking that unless you don't want the role. Um, and, or if you're, you know, interviewing for Palantir, you just want to, you know, flip them a bird while you walk out. Um, you know, helping students understand the large space and consolidate research material so that they have a quick and easy access to gaining that understanding of the ethical dilemma and the concerns around building these infrastructures as they become valuable parts of the hiring pipeline for these companies is one project that I'm, you know, actively interested in focused on something that I do at AI now quite a bit. Uh, one project that I'm working on, though, particularly at least in the last year, has been with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kazunis, um, who's a postdoctoral fellow at AI Now and also the lead of our health team, uh, understanding sort of the landscape of behavioral health and AI. Um, I, I, what's been really interesting has been the uptick in mental health services, especially digital mental health services in the pandemic time, especially when people are trying to cope with so many of these things. And at the same time, recognizing that once again, our healthcare system is very limited in the resources that it can provide, especially sort of mental health access is a humongous uh, burden um, and problem uh, that at least the American public face, and I'm sure that's globally the issue as well. And so once again, we find ourselves in a way seeing technology trying to fit its way into that gap um, and try to automate those processes, building anything from chatbots to you know 3D avatars that we would interact with. And so the research that we're really interested in is trying to understand that landscape. You know, what are the narratives and the design uh, choices that are made when building those technologies? It's a very thorny space. It's not the same thing or it's not the same way I would think about it as in criminal justice. For example, when you're building, you know, tools that are deciding who gets bail and who doesn't, there's a very clear uh, racial discrimination that you can't solve even through the model or the data. You have to recognize the institution you're working in. With behavioral health, it's much more sinister in a way because it's hard to tie apart exactly where those intersections of class and, and race inequality collide in the behavioral health space. Um, and then trying to untangle and trying to understand, well, how do these data sets even come together? Because the space is inherently interdisciplinary, um, right? And we talked earlier about, you know, the pros of interdisciplinary research. And here I'm trying to understand, well, how do those collaborations and how do those strands come together in ways that maybe shift the thinking of behavioral health to a more technology problem than a health policy problem? And I think that's kind of where I'm, that's the work that I'm really focused on right now. And I think it's really fascinating because I get to tinker with all these technologies and at the same time, you know, combine that with the amazing brilliance of, of Liz, who's very much an HCI scholar and has understand how these systems are built just from the user interface to the ground up. So um, yeah, it's been, that's the product that I'm really focused on right now. It's been really fascinating to work on it. That sounds absolutely fascinating. You know, I think especially with like behavioral health products and, and apps in particular, at least I don't know about for all of you, but for me, I've been barraged 
with like ad after ad after ad, like very heavily targeted. I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day, in fact, and he said uh, he he plays like this uh, online video game, Elder Scrolls, as like kind of a coping mechanism. You know, he wanders around and like it's just kind of his way of relaxing. And so he uh, he watched a YouTube video on it. So because we're going to play together and he wants to like give some tips and tricks. And, you know, the first thing he's like watching this YouTube video to like about this sort of coping mechanism for mental health. And the first thing that the the YouTuber says is like, you know, well, let me like talk about this mental health app goes into like this story about like, uh, you know, something that happened to him. And then now he uses this app and there's just this weird like meta narrative that's going on, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like you're using one coping mechanism and then you're being sold, you know, another. Yeah. Um, I mean, the yeah, the intersection of just healthcare provision and advertising in general has like a horribly dark and, and terrible past. And so productizing yeah. health service provision is just uh, a, a scary, scary thing. Yeah, exactly. Target, targeted for sure. There's that. I think that and well, first of all, a video game as a coping mechanism has actually been my like way of dealing with too. Uh, shout out Breath of the Wild, Legend of Zelda. Um, I think like <laughs> the biggest the the one aspect of it is the targeted ad- advertising, and that has the privacy um, issues as well. I think the one other aspect of that, especially when we talk about media platforms, that I'm initially interested in is the idea that Facebook and other companies might be the ones signaling who deserves care and who doesn't um, through that. So for example, uh, behavioral health algorithms that detect suicidality. um, And what are the mechanisms in which Facebook decides who is suicidal, who doesn't, and who deserves treatment and who doesn't. Um, And sort of this web of tech companies and then healthcare providers and the distribution of resources within that. Um, that Liz, I think, coined very poignantly, and, and I don't know if it comes from anywhere else, but this, this is where I heard it first from, is the algorithmic forms of care. Um, and I think that's where what I'm really interested in is, you know, the targeting of individuals, for sure. And then how do they actually maneuver and move through the health system because of that? Um, and where does the discrimination or where does the inequity lie? And how does it amplify already existing uh, crumbling infrastructures within our healthcare system, if at all, uh, through the construction of data sets and through the other factors that normally gets incorporated in the machine learning design phase, but ends up in the sort of ethical framework problems um, that we come up at the very end of deployment. Certainly very big questions. I'm sure you'll have it all sorted at the AI now as to what next year, (laughs) next year. (laughs) Probably, hopefully, I, hopefully this year. I mean, look, the pandemic has slowed so much of our work, but we keep trudging on. So I'm really grateful for the team that we've got. Awesome. And I'm uh, very thankful for the work that you're doing. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it looks like we're coming to the end of our time. So, I mean, before we finish, first of all, is there anything you want to give a shout out, your SoundCloud, 
uh, <laughs> anything like that <laughs> or, or just a cool project or uh, something that you're working on that, that we should all keep an eye out for? Well, I guess I'll say shout out to you guys. I think you guys are doing a fantastic job, you know, putting together a resource and informal podcast, which we are all turning to now. Um, in which we get to talk about these and inspire other young people and as well as senior and established devs who are in the space and are thinking about this. So I want to thank you so much for your time as well um, in doing and personally this project. Varun Mathur, everyone, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute joy to have you and hopefully we'll be talking again soon. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it.